This episode of Why We Bleep isn't sponsored by Signal Sounds. No, instead I've invited them to be on the show. This is like some kind of weird, horrible, selling out experience. Uh, no, it's not. It's interesting. Signal Sounds, whilst they may just appear to be any old random shop that sponsors this show, are people that are very known and dear to me. Uh, they are Jason and Alex from Signal Sounds, whom I've known for many, many years in the whole music technology industry thang. It's a interesting thing to be aware that there are more jobs in the music technology world than just, you know, sitting behind a mixer and, you know, actually making records per se. Of course, there is this entire industry of supporting, selling, promoting and recommending gear to people um, and which the people who work in shops, that is your, you know, you can spend a lifetime doing that. Many of my friends I have met through that world. I have worked in music technology retail and I still work in the music technology industry. And so it's just really interesting to talk a bit about that world. But also because I know Jason and Alex so well, uh, it's just an opportunity to be silly and have a laugh and chat about other things that related to music, such as the city of Glasgow, which has an astonishing relationship with dance music and very interesting culture in its own right. It's an amazing place. I'm really sad that I have not been able to go for ages and ages and ages, and I will look forward to going again. I do look forward to that, by goodness gracious. Um, it's a wonderful city, and we talk about the sort of, yeah, the, the mad personality of Glasgow, the uniqueness of it and its intensities with regard to clubbing um, and that and many other things. Fatherdom, we do talk about gear and selling gear and um, Jason talks about um, the, the interesting things that he has slipped into customer orders, uh, which he's sent to overseas destinations and um, many other things um, and the future of music technology retail. Uh, it sounds like a boring thing, but um, you know we need shops to buy stuff from. They are where we get all of our things, our, our toys. Um, and shops have an amazing role in recommending and fostering interest in equipment. You know, going into stores and hanging out and trying things. A lot of those kinds of experiences are you know, you hear famous artists talk about, you know, I would go and hang out and annoy the staff in so-and-so shop. I think shops can have an amazing ability to foster that. Um, if they're encouraging and, you know, they're the kinds of places that people want to kind of be welcome and come out and try stuff out and chat to people. And I haven't yet visited Signal Sounds, actually the shop itself. I'm looking forward to going, obviously. But I've talked to him before on the show about a fellow Glaswegian, Marco Bernardi's Elevator Sounds, which um, I've been to in Bristol. And they're a good example, too, of a store that is fostering a sense of community where you just hang out. People just come and hang out in the store, it seems. That's I've not seen that anywhere else other than like barbers, you know, like where people will just kind of hang out and have a chat and it's a sort of community hub. And so in this Christmas special, we will shoot the hay, hay the shoot, and just generally be incredibly silly and have a bit of a laugh too. They're very lovely people. I hope you will enjoy hearing from them. And so let's chat to Signal Sounds.
We hit record. I don't know what's gonna what's gonna happen. It's just a colossal waste of your time, is what it will be if it doesn't. We can happen. do it again next week. That's fine. My washing machine might be working next week, so Oh Sorry. how exciting. <laughs> Was that going to be part of the uh, the uh, discussion? <laughs> it might be. It's, it's it's really on my mind. My dishwasher's got a little bit of a leak around one of the seals, if that's of, of interest. Why are there seals in your dishwasher? <laughs> <laughs> they were chasing a whale. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh. Okay, I'm going to kick this off. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. I feel a bit self-conscious having you like looking at me as well. This is the first in a long time. I don't see people or talk to people anymore, so... Yeah, you've moved into the, the sort of solo mind. Oh, it's weird. I mean, it's... I mean, I'm used to it as well. Yeah. Being an electronic musician is like... It's a hermit-like pastime at the best times, but I'm a feel a bit like a cockroach that's had the light, you know, thrown on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it probably describes many people's year. <laughs> I was going to ask the question of, so, I mean, it is a bit weird, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm very grateful because Signal Sounds have sponsored my podcast for, since like episode two or three, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. It added an air of legitimacy, which uh, <laughs> I rapidly eroded by doing the stupidest adverts I possibly could to I thought your improvised adverts were extremely amusing and, and you, were, you definitely should have been on the stage at some point. Oh, thank you very much. That's very validating to hear you say that. Uh, my question was going to be, um, in 2020, or indeed when, was it 2019 when you technically started? And, b- 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 so the Signal Sounds has been running for four and a half years now. So oh, that's when not does that take us back to? 2019. 2015 or something. I suppose the question like, is that there, people may not realise or some people will be all too well aware that like in the music industry, quote unquote, and while you could sort of say retail is part of the music industry because the gear side of it, there are these, there are jobs that are like not, you know, and basically I've had some people who are like, oh, you should come and do a talk about, you know, working in music technology to people because people don't realise you can have jobs related to gear, related to like the selling of gear, like the, the retail side of it and still kind of be, you know, you are in the world of music tech, mm-hmm. but you're not, you're not in a recording studio yeah. um, or being a famous artist, though that may always be the dream, but it's, what is it like to actually set up a shop and run one? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll touch on, I'll, I'll touch on the point that you just made, which was I studied a long time ago, a music technology course at Stowe College in Glasgow. And I only did a year and a half before I went back into to music retail. And there was, I think, 22 people in our class and three other classes in the same year, all studying one form of music technology and recording. And this is back in the 90s um, when there were still recording studios. And I think after I went back to, to work in music retail, I kept in touch with a couple of the people that were on the course and I spoke to one of the senior lecturers there and he said that at the end of that year, out of the 22 people in my class, there was only one managed to get any sort of job which involved any sort of audio and it was actually working for BT doing um, audio networking, so not what you would call the, the glamorous end of working in, a, in, a, in the music industry. So yeah, the, there's... Uh, not just in 
music retail, but in in you know record labels have people who are specialists in online marketing. You know, you're still working in the music industry, but it's not what you would normally consider when people set out to 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 work in that sector. You know, there's actually a much wider variety of jobs um, than you would first expect. And yeah, music retail is definitely one of them. The main advantage for of working in music retail is just the amount of people that you, you get to interact with and on every sort of level. I mean, I've dealt with, you know, huge multi-platinum selling artists. I've dealt with people that work in, in higher companies. I've dealt with people that work, again, in marketing and promotions. I've dealt with bedroom DJs, bedroom producers, all, you know, every aspect of of music making comes to you in, in one way or another if you work in retail for long enough. Alex, what is your what is your background with this? Obviously, because Alex, so Jason is the owner and founder of Signal Sounds, I suppose you would say. But Alex, what do you do for Signal Sounds? The main thing that I do is rather than selling stuff to like end users, I sell stuff to other shops, to other um, like specifically modular synth retailers um and so i work directly with a few different manufacturers uh, expert sleepers in struo and future sound systems in the uk and i'm responsible for getting their stuff to every shop that sells it so that's 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 the main part of what i do because you both were rub uh, rubber dub yeah indeed i started in rubber dub in 2003 so I'd known the guys at Rubber Dub since the 90s. They they ran a club called Club 69 in Paisley, uh, which I frequented. And I bought my records from Rubber Dub and it was the main kind of central hub for electronic music in Glasgow. So I knew the guys well. How would you sort of sum up the experience of running a shop, uh, working in a shop in Glasgow of, the, of that kind? And what is the culture like? Well, I, I can get, I can say my experience of it. It's definitely a party town. It's definitely a, a a town where people have always enjoyed a drink and a, a, an after hours party till silly o'clock in the morning. Um, for me, the, the club culture here was mostly based around Detroit techno, Chicago house, disco, New York classic, New York disco. We're all kind of the main scenes when I started going out. Certainly, that was late eighties, early nineties. And the, the 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 kind of people that we would you would experience uh, both in in rubber dub and in sound control when when I in my early nineties days there was labels like Soma that popped up in Glasgow that were very popular signed Daft Punk back when back in the days the the kind of circle of people that they had um, round about them were were all making you know interesting. I would say club-based music was was the, the majority of it, and then after I'd say the two thousands, you got a lot more variety in the music. There was more kind of weird dubstep and grime influence stuff coming through, and there was all sorts of like, yeah, lots of little sub communities that all all kind of bounced off each other and worked together. It wasn't completely you know a ghettoized kind of city. It's a small city, so it's not you wouldn't have a night. You wouldn't have too many nights that were specifically about one type of music because the, there's maybe not quite a, as big an audience as there is in a city like London or Manchester or even Liverpool. So there's quite a lot of cross 
between the different communities I, I felt for for electronic music anyway and you would come across all those people were both in rubber dub and sound control as i said there's that statistic about Gla- about glasgow and its proportional spend per capita on live music and glasgow spends more on live music than i think any other city in the uk per capita and it's a, and, and it's a it's quite a big it's quite a big jump my experience as well like putting on clubs for a, a short while is it can be quite tricky because everybody here wants to do it and everybody here wants to be involved in the community and wants to you know kind of do their own thing and contribute which is great and it you know and that's amazing but like jason was saying it's not it's not a big city so quite often that means that nights are dead with amazing artists at it as well yeah like I remember me and a friend of mine used to go out clubbing regularly and they, we had this kind of running joke where we'd be like, we'd spot a thing that we were interested in and be like, ooh, we need to go and get down early. And then we'd go and get down early and we'd, there would be four people there all night. And, and we were like, oh. I mean, I think everyone's got a story like that. I mean, we put on B12 back in the mid-2000s before anyone had kind of got back into them again. And I was wetting my pants with excitement about putting them on. 40 people. And like at least ten of them were were like on the guest list and mates. Oh wow! So yeah, and also actually from talking about like small events, we used to do sound system hire at Rubberdub, and sometimes you would be like hiring sound systems out to like three or four different people that were all putting small nights on in little basement clubs that held a hundred, and you just knew that there was only about forty people would go to all three of those nights between them, and if they just had one night. Between the three of them, they could have had a good night. But you knew that each one of those three people were going to have 10 folk at their, cl- at their club because there just wasn't enough people to, to support it. But yeah, God loves a trier. <laughs> but then where does this sort of... I get the sense that Glasgow is successful in putting nights on, or at least that you can hear of these legendary nights that come out of the city. When it all comes together and, and there's... Like, say there's kind of five or six nights on, one of them's going to do well. And you'll have 500 people crammed into a 300 capacity club to see something and the atmosphere will be amazing. And, and that's, that's a, an amazing thing to be part of. But yeah, the, the other side of it is for every one of those. Yeah. <laughs> ones, the ones we put on. For, for every one of those. Yeah. There's, there's four other parties that are just completely, that are totally dead. <laughs> They've got an amazing act on. And you're like, oh, <laughs> I mean, I guess the other, like with the sort of experience of clubbing as well, like I'm, I mean, I'm, it's probably about three years since I was at a club. So I do feel like a wee bit of a charlatan at the moment talking about clubbing because I don't know, because I know that there's stuff going on or well, maybe not this year, but, or not as, maybe not as much of it this year, but <laughs> uh, you know, I don't, I don't feel quite as connected to it as I once did. Uh, and I would say the same. I mean, my, I'm talking historically here. I'm, most of my stories revolve around the 1990s and 2000s. Even the 2000s is nearly 20 years ago. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm the same. I mean, I, I, the last time I was in a club was about a year ago, roughly. I think Hot Chip played in Glasgow, and we know the guys from Hot Chip. They'd been in the shop and bought a few things, so we went to see them at the Barrowlands and then had a little mini dance down at the sub club afterwards but i haven't been a club regular for yeah a good while too busy running a fucking modular synth shop takes up takes up far too much of your time (laughs) i bet it does 
Yeah, I haven't been for like more than a year. Babies will do that to you. They will do that. Yeah. Um, and also the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> annoying party pooping aspect to it. But yeah, it's it seems, I mean, I've really enjoyed going to Glasgow. Like whenever, whenever, I mean, on the very, very, one occasion that I've spent <laughs> before we get there. I kind of, it's like, I get a kind of Berlin vibe from it, which sounds like, I mean, that is very much a, a layperson. I mean, it's so. definitely got the hedonistic aspect of Berlin, although they, they take it to another level. But I think a difference between when the first time I went to Berlin, like clubs in Berlin are open for like, I don't know, three days or something like that. Like, just fucking ridiculous. Two, two so days. You've got to pace yeah. yourself. If you want to last three days, well, you can't peak too soon, right? It's the complete opposite in Glasgow. So the clubbing experience in Glasgow is really compressed. Glasgow's had quite a kind of prohibitive policy on drink for quite a long time. Like, there, you know, there was a temperance movement here of the 1920s, 1930s. And, yeah. And... Even I'm not that old. I don't remember that. <laughs> the licensing laws here are kind of are kind of crazy as well, and it's only quite recently that they've been they've started to relax them. And when I moved to Glasgow, I moved to Glasgow in 1997, and when I moved to Glasgow, they still had a curfew for clubs, so you had to be in a club. Was it by midnight? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had to be in a club by midnight. Or or you or you or you can't go to a club, and the idea the idea was to stop people fighting. It's just so crazy. The idea was to stop people fighting when they get out of the pub, right? And then there's they're they're on the street for too long. So the idea was to make people run from the from the pub straight into the club, at, like before midnight. Like as soon as the pub's closed, so bang! Everybody's got to get to the club. But what that meant was, like, when I started going out to clubs in Glasgow, like, the club was full at midnight, which was mental, because it's only open till three. <laughs> so you've got you've got three hours to get as shit-faced as you possibly can, to have as much fun as you can. You've got to do it in three hours. So that's kind of led to this, it's this really intense experience in clubs in Glasgow that's not like a club anywhere I've been to anywhere else in the world and I'd, i don't know if it's necessarily a healthy way to do it but <laughs> but it's but it's pretty interesting <laughs> and it's and it's quite good clubs, fun. clubs and healthiness don't really go together yeah <laughs> but like i i do remember you kind of you can spot glaswegians if you go to berlin because they just can't last the pace like they just they be, they get you know they get to the first they get through the first five <laughs> hours and then they're just like, oh fuck are you talking about me? You're talking about me, aren't you? <laughs> you said you wouldn't tell. On the occasions when I've gone out clubbing in Berlin, I've been a bit like, oh, that's a bit boring, isn't it? Like, fucking, when does it, when, when does it kick off? You know, I've been here, I've been here two hours and, and, and it's still pretty mellow, pretty mellow. And, uh, but it's a, you know, it's a completely different atmosphere. There's a big clubbing tradition in both those places, so there's a, so there are loads of similarities. But that intensity of the experience in Glasgow is not like anything else I've experienced, and it bleeds into other things as well, like 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 live music, like gigs outside of the kind of electronic music sphere are are really intense here as well. I mean, yeah, I've been to lots of live music events that have just been really full on, and uh, and great fun. 
How so? Well, just because the crowd is so amped up because they're like, right, well, like midnight or or 1 a.m. or whenever, it's over. Unless you can find somebody's house to go to, go to or, or like an illegal after-party spot, that's it. Fun's over. Time to go home. So there's this side, you know, there's this kind of intensity to like, oh, I've got to have, I have to have all of my fun now because after... No more fun. I think that's what it's going to be like when lockdown is over. Like, oh, my it's Lord. Going to be, yeah, yeah. That's going to be a global orgy vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, imagine what Glasgow will be like. God. So, but then curfew, I mean, it's the curfew thing is all of the UK has, to some, to some extent, I felt, suffers from this kind of, like, we're supposed to have late night opening in clubs. Like, you're supposed to also have 24-hour licences. But my understanding especially in fucking England, is that they just don't grant them yeah. because they don't, they think that there's, you know, that it is just going to lead to this sort of, you know, 24-hour fornication and yeah, sort yeah. of like a murder festival that will happen in the clubs because p- they think people will just continue drinking. Yeah, forever. and no one no one would go to work on Monday, like the, entire, the whole of the UK <laughs> would be off on the Monday. I'm sorry, I'm just still in the club. So <laughs> Can't come in. Yeah, phoning in from the clubs, the new, the new thing. <laughs> you in the club? No, no. <laughs> they have special soundproof booths so you can like, phone in. We like piped in with like speakers that were like That's an excellent idea. Sponsored by Red Bull, of course. Beep. At this point, the recording cut out briefly because Alex's Wi-Fi died. However, he returned with a very large drink. Jesus Christ. Has he got enough whiskey? Is uh, that a big whiskey you've got? He can't hear us just can't now, can he? Us. Can't hear us. Hello. Is that a, got a fucking massive whiskey you've got there? <laughs> it's fucking uh, huge. <laughs> it's uh, no, it's not a massive whiskey. It's a uh, it's a whiskey mac because it's because it's Christmas. Whiskey macs are great. Mm. I'm unfamiliar with it. It's whiskey and uh, ginger wine. Crabbies. Over ice. Yeah. It's really good. Oh wow. And it's the good uh, it's the it's the double booze cocktail. Two types of boozies. Yeah. If you just put two booze together, then it's more it's more than it's more than two. It's like one plus one equals See, I'm not really a big fan of martinis. Like see a vodka martini, you're like it's basically just fucking vodka. Yeah. Like you don't drink straight vodka normally. You know, <laughs> maybe you do. Maybe you do. Um but yeah, it's not the most exciting cocktail in the world. You need two types of booze, minimum two types. Rusty nails are good. That's another good. That's another good one. That's quite Christmassy. Again, it's a whiskey-based cocktail, whiskey and a whiskey liqueur. So like Gleva or like Drambuie. or something. Mm. That's like Coke and Diet Coke. Yeah. <laughs> 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 or Coke. Coke and Pepsi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the way they mingle together. <laughs> do they mix or do they like stay separate in the glass when they're like oil and water? Coke and Pepsi, yeah, no, you can't mix them together. You get sued. It's <laughs> automatically. <laughs> there's, a, there's an automatic legal action. Bars yeah, cola. Nonsense. You can add bars cola to Pepsi or Coke. Add to anything. Cola. Yeah. But is it bar that makes iron brew? Oh, yes. Can you, I mean, this is definitely something we should, I mean, people listen to this from all over the world. Can you describe the cultural phenomenon that is Iron Brew and the taste? Let's do, let's do the taste first. The taste is, 
it's kind of like candy, candy floss and bubble gum mixed together. That's it's the liquid form of candy floss and bubble gum put together. So that that's what it tastes like. But the cultural phenomenon is just it's the world's only scientifically proven hangover cure. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing that can cure a ridiculously bad hangover yep. is an ice cold bottle of Iron Brew. Glass straight bottle. Straight out of the fridge. Glass bottle, sorry, mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, you get got glass the, bottles of it? Yeah, yeah. You used to get 10p back on them as well when you took them back. 20 pence now. Also, no, they've stopped doing it. Oh, have they? But, um, oh, fuck. Yeah. But culturally... What am I going to do with the massive stash of Iron Brew bottles in my garage? You're governor, mate. Just have to recycle them. <laughs> but yeah, culturally, I'd say it's the uh, it's the hangover cure, which in Scotland's very popular, obviously. So We, we used to, or people I know, you <laughs> <laughs> used to save up uh, the 20 pence back bottles yes. of um, Iron Brew and then take them to a corner shop and hand them over for a three-pound bottle of really strong cider. (laughs) So not only is it a hangover cure, Uh but in some cases, it's a hangover creator. It can go both ways. It's a yin-yang thing. That's a kind of beautiful, like, circle of life story right there. It's like, you know, Euroboros, you know, like this, the snake that eats itself. <laughs> it's like that. Now on to other, now on to other Scottish cultural things like Tunnock's tea, Tunnock's tea cakes. Did I ever tell you the time I put a Tunnock's tea cake in a, in a guy's order and sent it to Kazakhstan? Like, I'd, for a while I was putting Tunnock's caramel wafers in people's orders, just... A nice little sort of touch of Scotland with their order, and I put a Tunnock's tea cake in because they didn't have any um, caramel wafers at the local shop. And Tunnock's tea cakes have got like a little foil covering over the top of them, but it doesn't protect them in any way. And I put it, in, <laughs> put it inside. <laughs> I'm, 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 I make noise Cartesian system and sent it to Kazakhstan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'll leave it to your imagination. What? <laughs> The guy was like, "What? What's this thing? What's this thing inside inside this really expensive modular synther bot?" It's like, "Sorry." <laughs> Is, was it? Had it melted entirely? Um, no, it was more. It was more just broken and squashed, and 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 <laughs> kind of wasn't recognisable as a tea cake anymore. Uh, it's a delicacy, mate. <laughs> yeah, uh, Scottish delicacy. Mate. I sat on it before I put it in the box for you, mate. That's how we eat them up here. I, I'm very offended that you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you enjoy my local culture's delicacies, yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. Anyway. You put, you put haggis in orders as well, didn't you? I, did you? So that, <laughs> oh, fuck, did you put tinned haggis in an, in an order? So that, same, almost the same thing, except the customer actually asked for it. So it was a guy who was from Finland, but was living in... Berlin, I think, um, experimental jazz musician who was into his modular synths, and we had a real like hit it off straight away, like having crazy chat on email back and forward, huge conversations, and eventually, I, you know, I sent him his first order through, and he was like, "Wow, really happy. This is great. Really good. We've got this relationship." Um, I've actually been to Scotland. I was like, "Wow, cool." But he says, "I really like your country," which a lot of people say, you know, beautiful scenery, and you know, I don't mind the the wet weather. It's all part of the the charm of it. Um, I love I love whiskey, which obviously a lot of people say as well. They like, or especially if you you're touring the Scottish Islands, I'm sure you get some really nice stuff flung at you. And then he's like, "And I really like haggis," and I was like, 
fuck me, nobody's ever said that to me. So he put another order in and I'd put a couple of caramel wafers in as I was doing at the time. And then I thought, God, he really likes haggis. You can get tinned haggis. So I ran around the corner to the local Tesco's and got two tins of haggis and put it in his order. And he freaked out and he put it on Facebook and all these people started making comments <laughs> about it. So for a laugh, I then put a tin of haggis on the, the homepage of Signal Sounds um, for four quid. It's only two pounds out of the shop. <laughs> and um, people actually started ordering it as well. So I was selling that is, that, that is how you start a business. Give <laughs> <laughs> this manager plumber. But of course, it's ba- it was at the time banned in America. It, um, it was subject to regulatory review because there's awful in it and the Americans wouldn't take it. <laughs> because it's awful. Because it's awful. It's not awful, but it's got awful. It's not in. awful, it's delicious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really nice. So I, um, like I had to be careful who, who ordered it and who bought it. But then, yeah, so that was my, <clears> my haggis, haggis export experience. It's a crazy world, modular sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anything to get an edge. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that going back to I suppose the one of the, the earlier questions about why we do what we do and why we work in music retail and and the people thing that's the key thing for me in Signal Sounds is just we speak to people on in every single country like the, if we had a map on the wall it would have a pin in almost every country South America North America Canada Kazakhstan Australia New Zealand Malaysia Indonesia and you end up speaking to people Again, that are characters. I mean, you definitely get get some unusual folk, but it's more about finding out what they're into that you can you can kind of hook into as well. Like the, like that guy Alex that sent us the the um, the video over yesterday from Malaysia, I think the Indonesian stuff, and some of the music that he was sending us was next level weirdness. But it's just it's amazing when you 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 find that you've got a common sort of the old cliche about music being in, you know, an international language and so on. But it's true. You can, I can speak to people in, who have, live a completely different life in a different culture and you've got one thing in common. And even if it's just your passion for music, whether whatever type of music it is, um, it's, it makes for, it makes, an, it makes what can be a, a difficult job really interesting sometimes because you could just come away from an email conversation sometimes going, fuck, that was amazing. I would never normally have got a, a kind of cultural exchange like that without actually travelling to that country and meeting those people. Before I worked in retail doing like pro audio, like kind of music technology stuff, I worked in, I worked in hi-fi retail. Before Jason offered me a job at Rubadub as because Jason actually offered me a job at Rubadub, he, so it's his his fault. And then uh, <laughs> he has to blame. But at that point in my life, like I had a kind of choice where I was actually being offered another job at the same time, which would have been a kind of progression of the the kind of hi-fi retail job I was doing at the time, and it was significantly better paid than going and working in Rubadub, and, and would have been a lot more senior. And like, I think I would be much less interested working in retail now if I wasn't working in a retail, in like a sector of retail that I am personally interested in. Like, if you're really, really interested in hi-fi, and I was kind of interested in it, then you would probably have the same experience going and doing a hi-fi or working in the kind of hi-fi retail sector. But 
I wasn't that interested in it. I was I was much more interested in music technology and synthesizers and in making music than I was just in in hi fi audio. Part of the reason to to do this job is because I'm interested in all of the stuff that we sell. Like all, I'm actually interested in in all of it and in the manufacturers and in the people that buy it. You know, mm. um, and that's that's what makes it worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, going on that point, the manufacturers is the other side of the equation, <clears throat> which is, again, you're dealing with a real diverse and really, really interesting bunch of people, most of whom are fairly obsessive about what they do, which in my book is a good thing. Um, it can lead to some quite unusual personalities, but that you, you get everyone from like Ned Flanders style, super preppy kind of scientist guys with small wire rimmed glasses to folk that, that you wouldn't want to meet down a back alley making this stuff. And they're, they're just such an interesting bunch of people. And again, geographically placed all over the world. Um which again means you're you're dealing with people from different cultures and finding out about what what their city is like, what their musical background is, because not everyone's uh, a sort of house techno or electronic experimental guys. Some of them are, are coming from a completely different angle, um, and then finding out that some designers in in Eurorack aren't musicians at all. And that they sometimes struggle to understand why musicians want certain features built into their products because they are not actually musicians. They're electronic engineers that understand a bit about what they're, they're circuit geniuses, but they don't understand exactly how people will use the stuff. But they get a kick out of seeing how people do use the stuff, if that kind of makes sense. Mm. That's one of their driving motivations. But I, I love that side of it as well. Um, you know, most of these companies are relatively small some of them are, are kind of one one person or organizations but i love that side of it what is the average size of a Eurorack company would you say two people three people probably two people i would say on on average mm. um i mean some larger companies big bigger guys like make noise and intelligel I think are are still not particularly large companies, but maybe sort of 10, 12, 14 people. Mm. Um, but I'd say the vast majority of people that we deal with, it's either one or two people that, that are behind the company. They might have, I mean, they obviously subcontract out some of the manufacturing aspect of it, but in terms of the actual company, it's usually one or two people. Starting a company specifically like Signal Sounds, like what is that experience like? How the... How do you define it? It's it's a bit like marriage or having a, a, your first child. If people told you how hard it was and gave you a realistic view on, on how difficult it was and how much of an impact it would have on your life, you probably wouldn't do it most of the time. Really? Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty tough. It was pretty tough. I've been around him while he's done it. It's been horrible. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, yeah, I'm saying saying that in jest. It, it, it's just hard. It's just really difficult because you generally don't have anyone to fall back on. And in my case, um, my entire family are kind of dependent on me and what what I'm doing uh, as a as a day job, and they support me immeasurably doing it. In particular, my, my wife puts a lot of effort into to helping me and supporting me and yeah directing me when when it's all going a bit wrong but in terms of the 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 ins and outs of of setting the business up itself it's it's surprisingly difficult to raise funds 
in the UK for even a business which had a track record already. And I had worked at Rubber Dub and was able to explain how that I had helped that company grow from what was a very, very small company initially to something that was a you know, fairly sizable um, retailer in the UK, one of the top 10 retailers for a lot of brands that we dealt with. We, we, you know, we, we built it up pretty well, but I found it almost impossible to, to raise funds um, from any bank or building society or any financial um, company. They, they just weren't interested. And I don't know if that's because it's a retail and it's a niche and specialist area, mm. but I mean, I had, I had, I, I didn't go into it without preparation. I had business plans and projections and was able to show what I'd done over the last previous few years as part of a, a larger company. But yeah, it was pretty tough from that perspective, just actually physically getting getting the money together was probably the main challenge. I'd already been running the company and it, I had we had a website and we had a presence, you know, all those things were kind of there already. All we had to do was move to a new a new shop and and kind of put our own identity in there and, and, and sort of take it forward. But yeah, it was pretty tough. I suppose it's like buying a house. I mean, you're, you're borrowing a lot of money, sometimes up to half a million pounds to, in order to, to live in your house. And you've, you've got the, the hope that you would pay it back over time and, you know, the, the, um, that you can cope with all the stress and the difficulties. And yeah, I suppose it's, it's kind of similar to that. I got involved with Signal Sounds when when it was it was about to transition from being under the umbrella of guitar guitar to being its own entity so i kind of watched jason do all of this and um and i'm very grateful because like you and i I know i was kind of joking about you know oh it was horrible but i mean you can see the pressure like it's it's a huge thing to take on and i'm very grateful that jason was doing that and it wasn't me (laughs) 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 but also i'm grateful that jason because jason's capable of doing that and i don't know i mean i don't know if i'm capable of doing that or not because i haven't had because i haven't had to do it but i can see from watching somebody that i'm close to having gone through it how how much pressure there is and having recently become a parent and having been you know i got married five five years ago Uh, I hope my wife doesn't listen to this. Um, Unlikely. Like I can see, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but I can see, like I can see that those comparisons are true. Like it's it's a fucking really big undertaking. Doing it's a major like life that. event. It's really big, and it's yeah. I mean, but we had we've had um, obviously we've had this year pressure on everybody's had pressure like everybody has had pressure of one sort of another whether it is emotional and family pressure and general anxiety about about the world and what's happening um that's all been there for everybody so that this year's been been really tough on a lot of people so um, mm. i am although i'm saying it was difficult it was difficult but it, this year in particular has made me really thankful that we've what we've got and how we've managed to sort of steer our way through the, the, the particularly difficult 2020 as a as a retailer and just as I don't really see it as a retailer as such for me it's a it's a platform for the people around about me to be successful and to do what they love doing and for the people who buy from us to have success and and create interesting music and interesting instruments that's what signal sounds is really there for 
And I'm just really grateful that we've managed to get through this year in particular with all its difficulties and, and uh, it's worked, worked pretty well. Yeah, I did, just to kind of echo that last thing that Jason was saying, I did, um, I was speaking to a guy I know who works for Ableton and this was at Loop a few a few years ago and it was definitely at a point where I felt a bit jaded about working in retail mm-hmm. and I was kind of, I was talking to him about his experience working for Ableton and and how you know how it was all going and um I can't remember exactly how he phrased it but we were he was just kind of talking about how what we do is we foster a community so we foster a community of interesting like-minded people around us that's what we are here to do like and sale like sales come from that like you you're going to make sales as a result of doing something like that and that's kind of you can't think about it as like oh you know being the kind of gordon gecko style money focused retail guy that's not that's not a very interesting thing to do and 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 ultimately it wouldn't bring any of us here any pl- pleasure doing that that's not <laughs> that's not fun um that's really kind of you know doing something like that would be really mercenary and horrible and you you know yeah we'd be shit so <laughs> doing doing trying to do something good like trying to foster a nice community of interesting people who make stuff and interesting people who are going to make stuff with the stuff that's that we're we're selling them um that's what we're trying to do and that's yeah and that makes it that makes it good yeah that's definitely what gets me excited when i when i know that i've got someone that i'm dealing with and you introduce them to either a completely new idea or a new module which has came through which has something pretty unique about it. And you just know, I'm like, I'm going to email this person and they're going to see this and they're going to freak out. And it's not about, it's actually not about me selling them something. It's about them taking something, building it into their unique instrument that they've made and doing something really interesting with it. And then getting back to me and saying, thank you for introducing me to that idea or that Mm. particular um, module because it's really changed what I do and here's what I've done with it you know that, that's the part that I love and I suppose like you were saying with Ableton they don't consider themselves a software company so much they do consider themselves as someone who's a, a company that's created a platform which allows people to express themselves and it just happens to be a piece of music software it's a similar outlook that I have certainly it's not we're not actually completely welded to only doing modular synths that's not really what it's about it's about the end result it's about what comes out the speakers and it's about what makes you excited um when you hear the result of of people putting together these systems and what they can do with them that's what that's what it's about this yeah i can definitely say that videos i have made when i've been you know i'm getting paid sometimes to make a video i don't make the video because i'm getting paid uh-huh it's about showing someone a creative option uh-huh. isn't it it's like saying you could get this and if you get this this is what's going to be possible you know this is a possibility it's like that's and it's uh, one of the questions that i had which is something that i think about a lot it's like what actually makes people want to buy something it's like that that whole like what pushes the yes button like and i don't know if it's just like a groovy riff or 
for me personally, I'm like, it's, I think it's that sort of like classic sales thing. It's like, it's supposed to be when someone can see themselves using something and getting an amazing thing from it. And obviously like the sort of mad men world is like, you know, you create you a see, world that, that, you, that a person can see themselves in and it fulfills your wants and desires, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's kind of, that's sort of a bit abhorrent now, but I think it is true that it's, you know, it's seeing yourself doing stuff. I, I wondered what you thought about, you know, what, what does make people buy stuff? What are people buying? Well, uh, there's, <clears throat> there's a couple of answers to that. There's a few different ones. There's definitely an aspect of herd mentality in, in Eurorack. There's definitely <clears throat> certain manufacturers can release a module and everyone will jump on it straight away. Um, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing um, because if Make Noise release a module like the Morphogene, yeah, people are going to grab it because it's fucking amazing. Um, and there are other manufacturers that make things similar quality that, that people just get hooked into straight away. So that there's a certain herd mentality there that, that um, people will dive in because it's, a, it's the thing that everyone's into at the moment. I'm always amazed when when people explain why they've they've bought modules that they a lot of people have their own unique take on what they're going to do with it and i think that's the thing that that there's a couple of things about modular synths in particular that that interest me one of which is the, the kind of tactile nature of it. it it's something that appealed to me having used mostly computer-based um recording software and instruments during the say the 2000s in particular and, and 2010s um, that I just became less and less enamoured with the results that I was getting from it. And when, first of all, when sort of small desktop synths started appearing and then drum machines and then the modular synth thing exploded, that was when you had your hands on things for the first time in a long time. And that made it really interesting for me in particular to kind of have that touching and interfacing with an instrument and when people explain to me how they've taken a module put it into their system and done something which i wouldn't have thought of um i find that really interesting uh, and i think some of ben dev kids videos are really good at that where he'll take uh a vid a, he'll take a module and he'll just patch it in a way that i was like oh I didn't realise you could do that. That's really interesting. He's very, very technical. And I love stuff like that. But I also love people that just do wonky, weird things and plug things in the wrong way and put the module in upside down and, and go crazy with it. That That's as interesting to me as well. I've had the opportunity to do a few um, workshops with young people and, and modular synths. And I've taken like a, a 6U system with me. It's always interesting to see other people patch your synth that that you're always that you're kind of used to using and as free and as open as the modular synthesizer format in is i should say you get caught in little routines you know so you patch you know like oh that does that so i do that with it and you don't think you don't think about it and it's interesting seeing other people do it because sometimes they'll they will get it wrong in inverted commas and they'll do something else and that's yeah and that's really good i thought you talking about that made me think about the um the that james siegler thing the patch um patch the card game yeah and yeah he, and he's part of the 
the blurb of that that I was reading is him talking about how part of his inspiration for doing that was in seeing how other people patch his modular synth. When I when I would set a, a <laughs> when I would set a, a, a musical keyboard, like when you set a, a piano keyboard, I just play the same thing over and over and over again. <laughs> One of the nice things about modular synths is it can different types of synthesizers as they can take you away from that and they can take you into the, the the that point where you're like oh well i wouldn't have done that or not well i wouldn't have done that but it's well but that's good oh, but that, you know um yeah yeah they need a module that like a quantizer that um is like a sort of uh <laughs> where whatever scales and notes you've used it the module knows that you've used them and it sort of burns them out after a certain time and you're not allowed to use those notes. It's like, you've been using these notes for the last two weeks, so I'm going to take them away from you for yeah. the next two yeah. and you have to use you've different You've had notes. those toys, you can't Yeah, like the kind of screen time, screen time limits on phones and stuff yeah. like that. Screen yeah. time, but for, but for like notes and scales and yeah. like... You can't do black keys today, no black keys for you. You can only you. switch maths on for like... 72 hours at a time and then and then it sh and then it, it won't turn on for 26 hours you know oh could use something else i don't know what to do <laughs> that's a great idea. i did this you could have a really like yeah evil power bus that just turned <laughs> turned modules off at certain times that's a wicked idea the, you could um, probably hook that up with the you know the the adac the power power, power starvation thing. thing you could probably hook something like that up with that <laughs> you could have it on a sequential <laughs> switch so that it like kicks in every like I don't know, send it a gate and it just switches your module off. <laughs> I mean, those cards are really interesting. They're kind of like Eno's oblique strategies thing, but very specific to the the format of of or or the open format of modular synths. I think it's a great idea. I really liked it when I saw it. Yeah, it's because it, it's true as you say, Alex. Like the whole. You just get into habits with these things, which can be, it can be, it can be useful. I suppose it, one of the things I would say about that's good about habits is, is it's almost a byword for the fact that you've, you've discovered a relationship between things. Yeah. And that means you may be a step closer to turning your modular into an instrument, mm -hmm. which I was talking to some people on our discord, like earlier about this. And it's like, you know, you can sit and you can rework a modular forever and ever and ever. For me personally, like building those little modulars and building like a live modular with a purpose. And I've now built a second live modular with a purpose. And it's like doing it where you have a design means that there's, it's okay to stop adding to it and start learning it. Mm. It's that I thought that before about pe being jealous of people who've got like, you know, that guy, Basil Brooks, who's like this sort of older fellow who has got a VCS3. And I met him at uh, Ross Lamond's uh, synth event in Peterborough. And, and Basil has had a, a VCS3 or Cynthia since he was 16 and he's in his 60s. Yeah. And it's never changed. It's always been the same. And Basil is still discovering new tricks. And I think about all of the modules that I own. I've got like, I've effectively got like probably 15 VCS3s, yeah. you know, in terms of sheer raw power. And they're all just this amorphous shifting cloud. And it's the ones where you distill it to something and you actually go, that's this and it does that. Because um, it was what the person was saying was they were, they were starting to get disillusioned with modular because they were like, 
I just never can stop. I'm always getting it. It's a new, a thing. new thing. I'm yeah, thinking yeah. about this. And, and I said to her, I was like, well, perhaps it's a failure of just building an instrument. It's like if you've, if you've got an instrument to build, then you've got a goal to meet. And if it's not meeting the goal, then sure, you might need to make changes. But once it's met that goal, the, it shouldn't be about changing it, but mm. it should be about practicing it. on it. Yeah. I mean, if you've got an instrument, you need to then have a relationship with that instrument. And you can't have as deep a relationship if you're constantly changing everything that's in the instrument. Um, if you're constantly looking for you know, the the next killer sort of oscillator module or you want to change from, you know, I don't want analog oscillators anymore. I want the I want something that, that only does wavetables and then I want something that does wavetables, but I want it to have FM so that I can FM my wave. You know, if you're constantly changing the, the roots of that instrument, you'll never learn it inside out. In the same way that if you had a violin and you tried to play it with a stick of celery it was, and then you tried to play it with a carrot. You know, if you've got an instrument, you need to spend time learning mm. that instrument. And if it's constantly evolving, then you need to be pretty fast on your feet if you're going to get any good results from it. Um, it's, it's a, I'm not saying you don't change anything, but um, spending more time with what you've got is, is definitely a, a winner. I saw... I saw Morton Subotnik and Suzanne Ciani at an Ableton Loop event. And I think I kind of, after Suzanne Ciani, neither of whose music I'd ever heard before. I come from electronic music from a Detroit techno background. I'd never heard any of that that type of stuff before. And I was genuinely kind of blown away, especially with Morton Subotnik, because there were certain parts of it that, that were just complete sonic assault. It sounded like Autecker to me. And I kind of sneaked up on halfway around the back of the stage after the, the show and looked at the setup that he had. And it was this little Bukla 100 system and it had about nine modules in it and you could fit the whole thing in a backpack. And it was phenomenally like compact. And it, to me, it sounded like he had a, an arsenal of, you know, insanely large sort of modular synths when I was listening to it. So I was really impressed with with that and then I realised he'd been using that instrument since the early 70s and the same yeah. with Suzanne Chiani she actually said in the interview after her, her concert that she'd had the same five notes in her sequencer <laughs> since like Fair 1972 <laughs> the same five notes exactly the same she hadn't changed hadn't changed any of them <laughs> so but that made me think about someone that has a, a long-term relationship with their instrument and then what they can do with it and what those people can do with their, their incredibly um, refined instrument is they can play it. They can play it like, mm. and it blows you away with what, what they do. So, <laughs> yeah, buy less modules. Don't buy any more modules. But if you buy are going to buy some, down with retailers. definitely buy them from us. Yeah, <laughs> for that one final one. Yeah, just that <laughs> one little extra one. I think that yeah, so I had a yeah. I had a funny conversation with um, Tony from Make Noise at Superbooth. I was talking about an experience where I'd sold somebody a shared system, and quite quickly they'd come back to me and gone, mm, "Don't like it. I want to send it back." I was like, "Well, okay, you can send it. That's you know that's fine." Um, but like, have you tried this? Have you done you know blah blah blah? Like, here's a few things. Like, I don't have a shared system, but I've got most of the modules that made up a shared system at that time and 
I'd sort of said like, well, have you tried this? You know, have you tried that? And he was like, mm, no. Like, okay, well, go try these things out. Like this is this is a good way of using this instrument. He kind of said, well, okay, well, I'll go and try that. And then he can come back to me and he was like, mm, well, maybe I'll hang on to it for a bit longer. And I had this conversation with Tony where like you can't take a guitar back to the guitar store because you're like, mm, I tried playing Eruption by Van Halen on it, but I can't. So I need to give it back because this guitar is shit. And it's like, well, yeah, dude, it's an <laughs> instrument and you've got to learn how to fucking play it. Like, you can't just like, nah, it doesn't work. <laughs> it just makes this weird buzzing sound. It's like, well, yeah, there's kind of an investment of your time that we expect you to make in order to get to know this thing properly. And that will be an enjoyable experience. Like, it's not... We're not like trying to make you go through like mm. a, you know, this isn't about somebody having to go through like some weird, like, like Hadean punishment or like, it's like, you, like just learn how to use the instrument. It's good fun. <laughs> like it's, this is, this will be an enjoyable journey. You'll get more out of it, but it's not a short, it, but it's, it's not, not a short, a short journey. You know, it's, there's not a shortcut. Yeah. Mm. It's, yeah. that's, that can be a funny experience when you're, dealing with people who are who are who are who are getting synthesizers and i think that we're really lucky in that the in like pretty much all of our customers know what they're doing you know we like yeah we don't have we don't have to deal with people who are, who are buying things that they don't know what they do um we've got a really informed audience and that's really nice but yeah it's definitely there is definitely a kind of um, I think you can maybe hear Max. It's his bedtime. I'm completely distracted by him now. I can't think what, what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, I learned recently, I don't know if you saw, I, was, I posted it on Twitter, but the, I read this book, Man Watching. <laughs> exciting title. But it's, uh, it's by a guy called Dennis Morris, and it's about, uh, I think it's Dennis Morris. Desmond Morris. Desmond Morris, yeah, yeah. It says, in Man Watching, they did the experiments where they measured pupil dilation of men v women and it was men and women who are married or not married and men and women who are married and not married who also had children and the pupil dilation was in response to seeing pictures of children and like do you does your like you know care circuits do you do you sort of does mm -hmm. your brain light up you know and it it showed how women's pupils dilated Almost universally, mm -hmm. at seeing pictures of children, women were predisposed to sort of care, you know, experience yeah. this like visceral, caring, loving reaction. And interestingly, said men's pupils constricted uh, <laughs> when seeing children in all circumstances except when they'd had a child of their own. They'd had when the experience. that man had mm -hmm. had a child of their own, mm -hmm. then their pupils dilated. And there was this huge difference between the dilation of pupils. I was like, that is, and actually I'm starting to see because I'm seeing, especially in your, you know, you know, from the, the world of advertising, how influential advertising can be, but adverts that are involved like young kids and an appeal for, uh -huh. you know, your charity appeals that use like small, yeah, yeah, yeah. bigger, and I, they work on me now in yeah. a way that they didn't work on me before I had a kid. Completely. Children in Needs are a, a killer, man. Like, see, once you've got kids, you can't watch Children in Need anymore because you're like, <laughs> give them £200 <laughs> right away. <laughs> just, just take it. Um, 
if you think about it from a a perspective of for a man the, the whole thing about pregnancy and carrying a child is quite an abstract thing and they've not met the child yet as well so some men do find it quite difficult to bond even at the in the early days because they've not been through that experience of carrying that child inside and they've for them it's 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 a it's an inconvenience <laughs> a lot of the time in terms of the you know you're not I suppose you're not growing that 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 person inside mm. you, and you're not having that direct experience. It's it is something that's quite abstract from you. It's just a a bump. But my experience of that was like I knew it was happening. Like it was all it was all real. It was all happening. But yeah, it wasn't until we were about yeah. a fortnight out from. So Caroline had a section. So there was like a defined. There was a date that's happening then, and it wasn't until we were about two weeks out where I was like, oh fuck. And then again, so there was one like, oh, fuck. All oh, right, okay, now that's happening. Well, this is really happening. Mm, okay. And then, an- and then another one, literally in the operating theatre. Like, I had these two, like, very obvious, definable, <laughs> like, fucking penny drop moments of just like, huh. Because when you're, like, three weeks yeah. out, you're like, well, pretty much a month. That's fucking ages, isn't it? And then it's a fortnight, and you're like, oh, hang on, fortnight. That's a very short amount of time. And then, and then, like, in the operating theatre, just like, oh, okay, <laughs> fuck. Uh, I, guess, I guess there's no Caroline's going back like, now, right? I'm looking at your watch, just seeing how much time I have. Oh, hey, oh this shit's real. <laughs> yeah pretty good like i do remember being in the operating theater which i can only it was a lot like being in uh you know those like theater productions where it's like have you heard you know the ones where you like walk around and there's like actors yeah. around you and yeah, it's like yeah. pretend immersive scenarios thing. yeah immersive theater it was like an immer- and i wasn't literally in theater as well but it was like <laughs> immersive theater it was it was in that sense that you it almost was like people were playing roles. Like I was watching the anaesthetist brief the room and yeah. stuff. So I remember sitting there like smiling like I was high and just sort of like, this is wonderful. They're <laughs> like, doing their jobs and it's just so amazing. It's just like best thing ever. And then, of course, yeah, the, I also specifically remember looking at the clock and being like, when it was really close, I was like, it's going to happen soon. And I remember looking at the clock and it was 10 past nine. And I was like... Very soon it will be the time that I will always think about as the moment of his birth or their birth, which was sort of weird because it was it was like nine thirteen became like the time. It's like very hard. You sort of it's, there aren't many life experiences where you know you're going to have a life defining experience. Usually in retros, it's in retrospect. We are oh, fucking hell. That was a life defining, but it's like it's one of the rare ones where you actually can see it coming. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with modules. But, uh, yeah, it's true. So the final question, what is the future of music technology retail? Ooh. How long have you got? <laughs> oh, I really need a way. For, for, um, for me, or f- my view on it is that we we're working in quite a small niche bubble of the music technology industry and we're fortunate that we've got 
quite unique products and they require quite a lot of specialist information and experience to be able to sell properly. I mean, there are big online retailers that have jumped in on it in the last few years. There's various people that, that are quite happy to just flog boxes and not not really know that much about it. But I would say that the, the people that are doing really well out of it um, are people that have got good experience. Um, and are specialists in their area. And for me, that that's the only way for us to survive because music music, and shopping in general is now predominantly online. And I can understand that, especially if you're talking about a specialist shop, you need to be in a city that has a specialist shop if you want to go in and deal with it on a personal basis. Chances are that's not really the case, unless you live in Bristol or Glasgow. There's not that many specialist modular stores that you could you could visit. Even in London, there's very very little. Um, so everything's moving online, and eventually everything will be on Amazon. Full stop. Like they are the people that are taking over in every single area of all forms of of commerce. They are taking over. So at some point, what we are doing will be on Amazon. And as much as people like to say, "Oh, I support the small independents." If they're on Amazon Prime and they can get a stackable sent to them tomorrow for nothing, for 30% less than we're doing it for, it'll be there. It'll be something that's the, the big challenge for us. But the only way that we can hopefully maintain a presence and, and be successful in what we do is keep up the personal relationship that we've got with with people, so with our, our customers. So I suppose for me, the future of music technology retail is nothing to do with the actual products themselves it's not about new synthesizers coming out it's about us maintaining a relationship with the people that we deal with the future of music technology retail for us is coming back to this idea of fostering communities you know that's that's what we're here to do and that's what that's what we should be trying to do over you know over the, for the future of signal sounds, that's what, what we're going to do. One kind of encouraging thing that I see, because a lot of what I do is working with other retailers, one encouraging thing that I've seen yeah, since I've started doing this is um, the shops that are placing the biggest orders, by and large, are shops that are doing that, that are specialists and that seem to be fostering a sense of community around them and i don't i don't think it would be appropriate to kind of name names sort of like say oh this shop's good this shop's shite you know but like it's it's quite encouraging to see because uh, you might assume that like oh well they're just like a wee specialist store that just do this and they can't do that much business it'll be like some big like chain store that's going to be doing all the business and that's just simply not the case. Like the shops that are doing interesting stuff and that are fostering community seem to be doing quite well. And shops that are spreading themselves too thin, that are trying to do a bit of everything. Yeah, they're, I mean, it's, it's obviously, it's very hard to compete with people that are massive and that have got loads and loads of spending power. And as Jason is saying, everything's going to be on, on Amazon eventually. But yeah, it is nice to see the little guy's doing really, really well. And hopefully we'll see more of that. Yeah. Agreed. Right. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I need to go and pour another whiskey Mac. Hooray. Merry Christmas. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to I one did. and all. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>
and a happy holiday. And fuck 2020. Don't worry, 2021's going to be even worse. Get to fuck. Get, get yourself to fuck 2020. <laughs> no, that was good, Alex. Thanks for, for having us on. I really enjoyed that. Good chat. Yeah, thanks. for communities yes that is a very 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 good point to end on along with fuck 2020 fuck it so hard <laughs> goodbye 2020 uh of course you know the joke is going to be what's got 2021 got in store for us well uh either way um, we will have each other by golly and our toys to play on so even if we can't see each other much, we can still keep in touch. We can still hang out in the virtual world. And we've got our toys. You can think ahead to some projects you might be thinking about making. Perhaps it's time to make that album. Set yourself a deadline. Make yourself a paid bet that you'll make the deadline with someone else, if that's what it takes, to force you to do it. I need to do it. I've got some good musical projects I want to try and get done. But... That's it. Wherever you are, however you're feeling, if you're alone or with friends and family, good for you. And I hope you will think back on the positives of a year, at least some of them, and look ahead to projects, things you can make, stuff you're going to do. It's going to be okay. It's going to be great. So, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.